welcome to episode 38 of the different Doctor Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story, you know how it works by now, guys, and we dissect it. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, it's the ever enigmatic Dr. L. How you doing, Doc? I'm in a good mood tonight. Uh, I'm in a good mood for a, a, a whole bunch of reasons. Um, one of the things I'm not in such a good mood about is that I've, I've lost sight of a beautiful face. Oh, hold on, Doc. Let's see... Uh... Um, and I suspect it's because the camera is obscured somehow. Is it really? Oh, there we go. There you go. There we go. My uh, high-tech uh, sound muffling equipment, also known as two pillows, just blocked it temporarily. Yeah. There we go. Um, so I can see your beautiful face again now. Thank and, you. And what, 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 what a thing of joy it is. <laughs> um, I've been anticipatory and intimidated by our topic for this evening and the way in which I've chosen to approach it sort of will, will, will become apparent quite quickly. Um, but we'll get onto that in due course. But um, so we get to talk about kinder tonight. So um, that's the main reason I'm in a good mood. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I, I finished, finished watching it a mere 30 or, 30 or 40 minutes ago, Doc, so I am as fresh as it's possible to be. Yeah. What have you been up to? Um, in other words, uh, do we have an exciting discussion topic this evening? Well, I've, I'm incredibly tired, Doc. I'm, I'm going to battle my way through this episode, but which I'm very much looking forward to. But I am, I am fatigued. Um, having to get up at bloody quarter to four in the morning for work has, has taken its toll today. Um, but I'm okay. Um, maybe we should think about... Um, Corrections to start with, but we've only got one. Um, I can't remember the context, Doc, but we you mentioned a film called The Bride and no, no, Bride of the Atom. Um, now I can't find any such film, but I can find an Ed Wood directed Bella Lugosi film called Bride of the Monster. Is that the same film, just with a different title? <laughs> Um, yes, I believe Bride of the Atom um, was the title under which it was made and uh, it is, is, was Edward's preferred title. Um, and um, as is the case with many Edward films, they were renamed and repackaged. Uh, so infamously, uh, Glenn or Glenda, I think, went out under titles such as I Changed My Sex, Man or Woman, Which Is It?, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I wondered if it was like a like a territorial thing, you know. So in different provinces and territories, sometimes films have different titles. Um, yeah, um, I, I mean, um, Night of the Ghouls, which everyone is, is is not known by any other title than Night of the Ghouls. Mm. When it um, when it had its global TV premiere on Channel Four in about nineteen. 90 or 1989 mm. um the title card that came up says revenge of the dead oh right yeah 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 i, I always um, like a good um i always like a good foreign film title you, you know so it's a, an english an english spoken film you know we, we, we with a title that we that we know and love but then in in, in kind of foreign language territories they, they they give it an alternative title i think my favorite one has to be jaws um which in france is called les dents de la mer, which is the teeth of the sea. It's brilliant. That was a fantastic title. Yeah, um, the, the, this, this, we, we like a parlor game from time to time, and um, 
I've always sort of wanted to play the one where someone comes up with the the correct title for a film and you have to try and guess what film it was Mm. um, in in your particular territory. Um, There's one that just sprung to mind um, and it's not even a particularly good translation, uh, but I like both the titles. Um, There's a a Tinto Brass film, um, which in Italian, the uh, the title is... uh, Trasgrediere, mm-hmm. um, I think I've got that right, and it's effectively the Italian word for tragedy, like tradia, mm-hmm. um, with a parenthesized gre in the middle of it, um, which means you can read it as tragedy or transgression, um, and in English uh, it's called cheeky, presumably because um, it features Yulia Marachuk's behind a very, very, very great table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, the, I, I like the literal translations as well, you know, so you'll get, I, I think there's an example, I, I might not be exactly accurate in this, but I'm very close. The Sixth Sense, uh, spoilers guys, for the sixth, for, for a film that's now, what, fucking 24 years old. Um, <laughs> in, in, in Norway or Finland, you know, one of the Scandinavian countries, its title is in the, you know, in the respective language, he's a ghost. <laughs> kind of ruins it, didn't it? Kind of ruins the film. Never mind. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this uh, this would be the equivalent of um, uh, an international release of um, The Usual Suspects um, being um, Verbal Kimt is Kaiser Soze. That's it, yeah, it, it, <laughs> watch out for Verbal. <laughs> you got it done. Yeah. Um, what have we been watching, Doc? Have you, you, you've been watching anything interesting? <laughs> um, I never... I, I was going to say, I never don't watch interesting things. So, okay. but I, I can go for, like, weeks or sometimes even longer um, without sort of really watching anything. I've been sort of dipping my toes into the uh, the brackish waters of um, Italian sort of uh, mystery thrillers recently. Mm-hmm. Um just because it, it's it's a great big gap in my education. Um, I the, There were a few that I wanted to see, as you'll remember, preparing for the Ambassadors of Death. Um, and since I had a couple left over, um, these also very often have uh, titles which um, are, are brilliantly mistranslated for international markets. Um, there's one um, which um, I've watched, and it's called um, Six Women for the Killer, which in English is for some reason called Strip Nude for Your Killer. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah we've, we've talked about this before. This was the one that was that was either, that was was either too hot for our podcast. Remember, because I tried to download the like the trailer for it, and, and, and no format of it would, would allow me to download it. it, it, it That's it, it, right. Like the passing error. Real time. Um, so that's what I've been watching recently. Um, nothing particularly out of the ordinary. Mm. Um, I, I sort of mentioned uh, for the second week in a row, um, I've been listening to the Daughters of Darkness podcast, going over my archived episodes of those, sure. which is one of the things that made me prick up my ears and go, oh, you know, these um, Italian mystery thrillers. I, I'm I'm uncertain about the correct use of the word giallo. So um, I'm still uncertain about the correct application of the expression. So I'm going to err on the side of safety and say Italian mystery thrillers. Very good. Um, Very good, Doc. Yeah. yeah. I think for it to be um, giallo, 
it's it's generally got to have, in my mind, a giallo movie has to have like a sinister killer wearing leather gloves, um, slaying beautiful young women, and with a neat bandage over his face. And yeah, yeah, so, you know, yeah. So, yeah, something like that. Yeah, um, um, but, but bird with I think crystal plumage, I think, is a, a really early example. Um, but I think the girl who knew too much is considered to be the very first one. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, uh, it's 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 one of those sort of incredibly broad definitions. And yeah. Since since it's the kind of thing that that media geeks love to get into. I'll get into it when I'm a bit more confident. Sure, fair enough, Doc. I watched the first episode of something you recommended to me, Doc, which was Nova Jones. Nova Jones! Nova's on the moon. Did you know? I did. Um, I was a bit baffled by it, Doc. I, I, I love the visuals, um, and obviously, like the sci-fi setting, always, always, always tickles my fancy. Um, but I did find it rather irritating. Now, that's bearing. You know, I, I am aware it's not really aimed at me. Um, you know, I'm too old. I'm, I'm not the target audience, am I? Let's be let's be frank. Um, it's for little girls. It, exactly. Yeah. So, what, what was I meant to be seeing, Doc? Talk me through it. Um, it's precisely the it's for little girls aspect of it, um, and the reason I wanted you to watch it is because if there's a set of visual cues, um, specifically a, a, a look and feel for one of many possible ways that I think Doctor Who should look like in the future. Mm. I think that's it. Mm. Um, it's basically the cheapest chips, bright colours everywhere, aesthetic of your beloved season 17, mm-hmm. um, done in the style of 2022. But also, I, I, I think, mixed in with like a melange of Star Trek as well. Star Trek and um, the single biggest influence, and I don't even know if it's an influence because I'm sure not many people remember. Do you remember a series on Saturday, early Saturday evenings called Luna? No, I don't. Right. Um, with a very, It's completely unavailable now. I suspect yeah. because it has a very young Patsy Kensett in it. Right. And um, because the rest of her career has just gone on to like Helen Mirren, Dame Maggie Smith, heights of thespian magnificence i imagine she's rather embarrassed about it nowadays uh, mm-hmm. um and um it's i'm going completely off memories um but it's an extremely bleak dystopian future science fiction series for small children wow okay mm-hmm. um if you remember it at all or if anyone, if anyone remembers it at all the, the character that people remember is they're sort of their, their, um, their Darth Vader, Clytus 
type character um, who sort of makes startling appearances and utters blood-curdling threats and then yeah. immediately after a minute or two um, takes off his helmet and he's like um, a, a little sad-faced petty council bureaucrat who's come to like collect the rent or complain about people not taking their rubbish out or something like that sure yeah um and a bit like the caretaker from uh, paradise towers well it, yeah but 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 done well right <laughs> um, yeah um he's uh, I, I believe he was called bureau being 476 mm. um and his his costume is actually genuinely threatening and genuinely sinister, except after stepping through the door in a cloud of dry ice and, and, and flashing purple lights, he then takes his helmet off. Um, and he's, he's just this sort of harried, balding, shriveled little guy with a sad moustache who, 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 who looks like he should be reading Ferret Keeping Weekly in his garden mm. shed or something like this. Yeah. Yeah. And he sort of always asks for a cup of tea and then complains how hard his job is. And then puts his helmet back on and issues another blood-curdling threat and leaves. So but I I wanted you to have a look at Nova Jones because I um I wanted you to imagine that aesthetic carried over into because I'm now at the stage with contemporary Doctor Who. I mentioned this last week. Um it's equally as bad, maybe worse, as it was as, as I found it in 1989. And it's like, yeah. just do something with it. Do something, to, like, no matter how bad it is or no, no matter how misjudged it is, it's got to be better than what we're stuck with at the moment. I mean, one thing I did take away from Nova Jones was it, it definitely looks more like like a proper a proper science fiction series than, 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 than the current iteration of Doctor Who does. Than Doctor sure. Who does, right? Yeah, yeah, that's for sure, Doc. I totally agree with you there. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, here's the thing. For all of modern Doctor Who's protestate, well, by modern, I mean in the last few years, for all of its loud protestations about how inclusive it is mm. um, and how, um, you know, diverse it is and how it's, how it's supposed to appeal to the widest possible audience, can you imagine people who aren't automatically predisposed to like Doctor Who in its current incarnation? liking it because mm. i can't well and, and and i think we're seeing that in the like the, the tailspin of the of the viewing figures on it, it, during the chipnall era unfortunately doc so i think i think there's I, th I think there is actual evidence that what you're saying is correct um so i mean you know if you want to show how inclusive you are um here's a bold radical statement do something that might that, that, that might make little girls feel includes uh, in, included yeah. um, do something bright and colorful and that doesn't take itself so fucking seriously all the fucking time that it drains all the life and joy out of the room it's being played in. Sure, yeah, and, and, and that's something I'm going to bring up actually as we as we discuss Kinder. Funnily enough, Doc, should we move on? Absolutely. to part one of the show which we call tardis talk it's topic of the week eh, Doc? give me a number between one and 14 please sir um goodness um we're discussing kinder tonight which puts me in a slightly mystical mood um so um, i shall pick seven number seven hmm. what do you think about the mindset of people who obsess 
over very short running TV shows, Doc. I'm thinking of stuff like Spaced. This is our house. We've lived here for about a year. Our landlady lives upstairs. There's another guy that lives in the basement. And um, we sometimes have friends around and stuff. But we're not a couple. No. <laughs> <laughs> or Faulty Towers. You know, the pe people who, who, who are absolutely fanatical about these shows, even though, you know, they're, they're, there's barely enough material to, to fill an afternoon. But what, what do we think about this? It depends what you can mine out. Uh, the, the closest I get, the closest I get is Sapphire and Steel. Irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Transuranic heavy elements may not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. Um, which is it's it's thirty two episodes in total, of which six episodes are completely unwatchable. Mm -hmm. um, and some unkind folk might be um, like um, might be moved to say it's th so it's thirty two episodes in which nothing actually happens. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a constant companion of mine for thirty years now. Mm -hmm. um, I've watched it goodness knows how many times and it depends how many times you can keep going back to it and keep noticing something new and how many times it keeps coming up fresh and different mm -hmm. um, people find it odd that someone can be a huge fan of Faulty Towers for instance but no one thinks it's odd in quite the same way if someone buys a season ticket to The Lion King and goes to the theatre to see it every Saturday for a year Okay, I, I would think that was odd, Doc, personally. Um, and all right then. Nobody finds it as odd in quite the same way when people are obsessed with Gone with the Wind or Star Wars. Yeah, I was, yes. I mean, Star Wars is a great example. Yeah, yeah. But but you know, but, but, you know there, 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 there is you know considerably more material for Star Wars. You know, you're looking at nine movies. Um, you're looking at two seasons of, of, of that thing called The Mandalorian um, and, 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 you know, the expanded Star Wars universe, if you want to get into like, novelizations and shit like that. But the, 
this this fan cult, maybe not on quite the same scale, but the fan cult existed long before all that extended material. That's a good um, point, Doc. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I, I reckon the fan cult existed from midway between the first and second films. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think it was the um, you know the 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 what would, what would, what would we call it? What's the word, Doc? Um, ah, when they make a bunch of toys and stuff for merchandising. For, yeah, the merch. Yeah, the, you know the, the brilliant merchandising that they did with Star Wars just captivated a generation, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was I was too young to be aware of Star Wars when it came out. Mm -hmm. Empire Strikes Back was the the movie that was in the popular consciousness by the time I became aware of popular culture. Yeah, and there was already a shitload of merchandise. There was already um, there was already a fan culture. Yeah, um, around four hours of movie. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't find it odd. Um, I mean, it's. Uh, I suppose, not to answer your question with a question, but people who are obsessive fans of stuff with such short running times, mm -hmm. what, what do they find to it? Like, what, why don't they, why haven't they exhausted it already? I don't know. I, I, I suspect it's like, a, it's a comfort thing, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it's reassuring. It's, it's, you know, you put it on, you, you always know what you're going to get. You're not going to be surprised. Um, you know, I suppose it's the equivalent of, you know, going to your favourite, Chinese takeaway and, and always always having the number twelve. All right, I've got to, I've, I've I've got to come back for you. Um, how how many hours of Iron Maiden are there in the world? Yeah, I, I was I was actually I, I, in my mind I was, I was pondering uh, music. Um, yeah, I think it's fifteen albums, so you're probably looking at what thirteen hours. Yeah, so an approximately same amount of time as Faulty Towers, something like that. Yeah, that's a, yeah good, maybe double, because it's 12 episodes, yeah. isn't it? 30 minutes um, each, Faulty Towers. So, I mean, I, I, I picked Iron Maiden because out of the bands that you... So, I, I mean, in amongst Slayer and In Flames and the other mm. bands that you love to bits, mm. Iron Maiden are the ones that have... I, I, I think Iron Maiden could be described as the biggest cult band on earth. Right, mm-hmm. Um, that they've managed to obtain an incredible popularity without ever once being popular. That's right. You're right. It is. It's very fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, you are right. You know, yeah. Um, they've never been um, cool, have they? Like maybe Bruce Dickinson by himself was very was was very very briefly cool. Um, you know, when when he was a stadium rock god and an Olympic athlete mm -hmm. and a pilot and a pilot. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think maybe like Bruce Dickinson by himself was was cool for about ten and a half seconds. Yeah, well, he he, he appeared on Nevermind the Buscocks. And, 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 you know, and that seems to be a stamp of coolness, doesn't it? Normally, yeah. Um, uh, he's he's never he, he never had like the the underground cachet that say Lemmy from Motorhead sure had. Mm -hmm. um, but um, he was always good for a quote. Um, 
he's a good dinner guest. I, I mean, Lemmy from Motorhead would not be a good dinner guest. <laughs> um, Lemmy from Motorhead would drink all your booze, kill your dog, and do something absolutely awful to uh, like any members of his uh, and any members of your family you could corner in a bathroom somewhere. I suspect. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It, it, the reason this topic came up in my mind was I was talking to somebody at work and we and we got talking they like the science fiction we got talking about Star Trek and we kind of figured out that if, if you watched one episode of Trek every day um, it would take you approximately three years to circle back to the first episode wow yeah um, my personal barrier to like let's say becoming an obsessive fan of Faulty Towers is I I can't see how much you, I, I can't see how much I could dig into, but that's because I'm not a comedy person. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my analogy of say Faulty Towers would be for people who are real comedy people would be um, probably like some jazz album from the late 1950s, where people can just listen to it every day of their lives for years and years and years and, and study intricately all of the chord structures, how all of the solos are put together. Mm. Um, and like one album or two albums can become a whole entire all right I've got an even better analogy um, and it's a bit unforgivable I didn't think of it now because this crosses over into the episode and poetry yeah mm-hmm. um, there are poets who've left behind a fairly slender body of work but they, they have their own fans mm-hmm. sure. um, I think you could read I think you could read everything that T.S. Eliot wrote in a really concerted effort in one day. Sure, yeah. And people um, do reread poems, don't they? I mean, I, yeah. I'm, not a, I'm, not a po- I'm not a poem guy. Uh, I'm not a poetry guy, really. Um, but I'm aware, you know, that the, the, the people that do like poetry do reread the same poem again and again and again. So I think that's why people are obsessed with, and I, I keep picking on this one, for which I kind of apologise and I kind of don't. I think that's why people are obsessed with Faulty Towers, because... Yeah. If if you're a comedy person, it's like the it's 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 the Shakespeare sonnets of comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, not every single thing precisely, perfectly in its place. Not one second wasted. Mm. Every gesture, every word, every piece of direction has a meaning and has 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 a, a comedic significance. Mm. And I, I think that's why people can get so far into that. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly not picking on Faulty Towers. You know, I must have watched, I must have watched Faulty Towers, you know, in its entirety at least five or six times. You know, so I do like it a lot. Um, but I, but I certainly couldn't watch it every day, Doc. I think that's my point. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, Should we press on? What do we think? Yeah. Jenkins. Shout for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds Rapid. Uh, tonight's story, as the good doctor already introduced, is Kindak. Mara inhabit the dark places of the inside. Wherever the wheel turns, there is suffering, delusion and death. Now the Mara turns the wheel of life. 
With my help, you could become all powerful. I am a Mara. Do not resist. I am your strength. For the light on! For the light on! Open the box. I don't think that would be very wise. Open it! I have the power of life and death over all of you! Uh, Peter Davison's third story, uh, written by Christopher Bailey. Didn't really do anything else ever, by the looks of it, Doc, in, in my little bit of investigation. Um, not director. No, no, fair, no, fair enough. No, not a criticism, just just a, a simple fact. Um, directed by Peter Grimwade. Uh, a bit of a mainstay in this era, wasn't it, Doc, Peter Grimwade? Well, um, I suppose they had to have one good director, didn't they? <laughs> Music by um, Peter Howell, which surprised me. I, I, I imagined it would be Paddy Kingsland. <laughs> Not Roger Lim. Not Roger Lim. <laughs> uh, um, main cast, of course, we've got um, Peter Davison as the Doctor, Matthew Waterhouse as Adric, Sarah Sutton briefly as Nyssa, and Janet Fielding as Tegan. Other notables, Richard Todd as Sanders, Nerys Hughes, of course, as Todd, Simon Rouse or Roos as Hindle, um, Anna Wingers. No, Anna Winger's Anita and Lee Corns as the trickster. Um, do you want to kick us off, Doc? I, I imagine you've got some thoughts, haven't you? Um, yeah, so a, a, a bit of a preamble. Um, and I'll, I'll be repeating myself, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it just this once. Um, first, some foreshadowing. Um, in Apocalypse Now, um, Captain Woodard says that he, he he cannot tell the story of Colonel Kurtz without telling the story of himself. And similarly, um, I can't really talk about Kinder without talking about my engagement with Doctor Who. Mm. Kinder was the story that made me a Doctor Who fan as opposed to someone who watches Doctor Who when it's on. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that if, if Terence Dix taught me to read, um, Doctor Who taught me to be uh, Doctor Who made me want to be an intellectual um, and Kinder is the single biggest component of that for an era which is not greatly respected for its intellectual content season 18, season 19 seems to have had a staggering effect on the minds of the young people who watched it um, I mentioned before that there's a very, very, very good acquaintance of mine, kind of like my my best friend all the way through school and most of sixth form. Um, and he sort of similarly credits Logopolis for making him into a mathematician. Sure. Um, which is a thing that he went on to practice at an extremely high level um, and a professional level, um, even unto this day. Yeah. Um, Here's what I've got to say about Kinder, and this is, I, I could kind of finish my contribution having said this. Kinder was the first thing that I'd ever seen that I didn't understand. And I realized that the reason I didn't understand it was not just because it was adult, I'll tell you when you're older. 
stuff but because I wasn't sufficiently educated and I wasn't sufficiently intellectually developed to understand it. And it made me decide for myself that I was going to head out into the world or more likely into the school library um, and find out what the hell this thing was all about. Secondarily, um, it was the thing that made me decide that I was never going to miss an episode of Doctor Who ever, ever, ever again. Um, and I get the impression that I'm very, very far from being unique in having that experience of this story. And I'm certainly not unique in having that experience from some parts of this season. I, I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, however old you were when this was broadcast, I'm not surprised that you didn't understand it because I've, you know, I've, I've rewatched it today. I've probably only watched this story once, maybe twice prior to today and you know the, 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 there are bits of it that i that i really really struggled with because it it is incredibly dense isn't it and i don't mean dense like thick you know obviously i mean dense like packed full of ideas yeah so i've been i've been looking forward to this episode of of, of the project and i've been intimidated as well because i've realized that i've, I've sort of got only an hour of i've got only really like a one hour lecture to give a definitive account of Kinder. And while I was preparing for it, the, the, I, I wanted to do some research and I went back to um, my favorite novel because there was a quote from David Lodge that I wanted. Mm-hmm. While I was looking for the quote that I wanted, which comes up later, there's a bit quite early on where um, David Lodge's character, Morris Sapp, is talking about how when he was younger and he was a very greedy and ambitious young academic, he decided what he was going to do to cement his place in the academic firmament was to write six books, which would be the absolute definitive final statement on the works of Jane Austen. And he aimed to do that. He, he did this with the aim of putting all of his rivals out of business. Like once he completed these books, he would have the last word forever on Jane Austen. Yeah. Um, and he said, and, and he says that halfway through the project, um, he gave up and he said, um, he discovered that the project was not merely ut- uh, utopian as it was self-defeating um, because you can't get to the core of Jane Austen, you can't get to the core of any text um, and he uses the now very well-known structuralist phrase, um, every decoding is another encoding um, and he, he he tells a sort of after-dinner anecdote about going to see strippers in Los Angeles um, it says, veil after veil, garment after garment is removed um, until everything seems to be available, but it is not. The vagina remains shaded by the pubic hair. And even if the girl were to lie down on her back and spread her legs, would we still have attained the goal of our voyeurism? No, we would not. Staring into that orifice, we would merely be confronted with the mystery of our, of, of our own origins. Mm-hmm. And so it is with reading. Um, it's not the text we find at the end. It's only ourselves. And point number one, that's actually what Kinder is about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's, that's literally actually. But, 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 but there's great truth to what he's saying there, isn't there? You know, and, and I think it's something we've discussed previously on this podcast. Um, this notion that, um, you know, you, you, you take from a text whatever you can't, almost whatever you put into it or, what you know, whatever perspective you you gain from it. So the author writes a piece of work and then it's, it's almost up to the, you know, to the reader 
what they glean from it. Yeah, and when you have a very unique and a very special text like this one, um, you have a process that's a lot like intercourse. Um, you insert a part of yourself into the text. Um, and when you come out, you don't own any of the text, but you are a certainly different person. And it makes you go out and look at other stuff. So your first engagement with Kinder is trying to understand the plot, trying to understand the story. And when you realise that you can't, because there are some things that are just not part of a story in as much as you understand the word story when you're eight years old, and then you realise there are metaphors and allusions, um, and you go out and you learn about metaphors and allusions. And you come back to the story, um, and by this time you, you might be doing religious studies in your first year of secondary school or something, and you start spotting what seem to be bits of Buddhism and bits of Hinduism. Mm -hmm. So you pull those out and you go out into the world and you explore those. And then you come back and you reinsert yourself into the narrative again. And when you withdraw for the third time, um, you find you brought with you bits of European paganism. And then you keep on doing this, and each time you come out with variously... Um, 19th century romantic writers, you come out with late 70s, early 80s radical feminism, um, you come out with um, atextual narratives, you come out with European filmmakers, and the more you keep diving into the text, every time you come out, you bring something else with you. Um, and so I'm going to bring up, finish up my first round rapid um, by saying, I've given up the idea of ever having a definitive explanation as to what Kinder um, is about, because as I keep changing, then my understanding of it will keep changing as well. And I'm actually just fine with that. Yeah, that's great, Doc. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's really, really fascinating. Here, here are two or three things that I that I pulled out of it as, as kind of themes of the story that I've watched today. Um, I mean, obviously, reincarnation is present. Um, almost the idea of the of the karmic wheel as well. Um, mm -hmm. You know, which I believe is referenced in both Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, existentialism is evident, I would say. Uh, the study of identity and ego. Um, the fracturing of an individual's personality, um, and then like the, almost like the dismissal of otherness to render um, a community almost clone-like. They're, they're, they're the first few things that I like pulled out of it, Doc, as I was watching it. Well, so let's let's go back to what we'll say, like first year undergraduate, yeah, um, which is about where we are at the moment. So, um, what you've picked out is Marx, Freud, and Lacan. Right. Um, and so you have a Marxist angle, which is um, the concept of two wildly different systems of economy. Um, so you have you have a colonialist economy um, contrasted with um, an agrarian gift economy. And mm -hmm. um, the kinder's method of introducing themselves to you is to give things to you. Yeah. Um, and there's um, say Fraser to me later on in case it slips my mind um, and that has redolence with parts of ecofeminism that were prevalent in the mid 1970s and the concept and, and, and specifically the concept of the lesbian gift economy mm -hmm. 
So that's the Marxist angle. The Freudian angle is the thing you've already talked about. So the the battle between id and ego and superego. Yeah. Um, and Hindle is one of these characters who's, um, in Freudian terms, he, he's 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 trapped in his um, he's trapped in his between his anal and his oral stage. Mm. Um, and, uh, oh, go on, Doc. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, um, he's um, he's unable to move on because he's unable to transcend the dominance of his father figure, which is Sanders. Sure. Um, in classic Oedipal terms, um, he wants to fuck Doctor Todd and murder Colonel Sanders. Mm, mm. I, I thought the like the the the, the, the military militaristic um, presence was very interesting when it was when it was like not contrasted, but when it was, when it was put as, put beside the, like the Tegan vision stuff, particularly when she was divided into many separate aspects seemingly of her own personality and then merge back together because my understanding is this is kind of almost part of the military process where they you know they take a raw recruit off the streets and they dismantle their personality and reassemble them into the in you know into into the the, the fighting fit soldier that they want them to be yeah um i mean uh, you you'll hear it called dehumanization mm-hmm. um and in this also loops around to aspects of Eastern philosophy. Um, and it's to do with the, the abnegation of ego. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually to quote Planet of the Spiders of all things, um, one day the man will look at himself and see that he is no man. The one will look at himself and he will see that he is no one and he will find to his inexpressible joy that he has never existed. Sure. And it's actually, and um, um, I wasn't even planning on mentioning Full Metal Jacket. I think right at the end of Act One of Full Metal Jacket, that's the uh, that's the experience that Private Pyle undergoes, and it's absolutely indistinguishable whether you can say it, it's 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 Buddhist enlightenment mm. after which he joyfully embraces death, yeah, um, or um, whether Sergeant Hartman has just done his job really, really well and turned this fat plastered lad into a stone killer. Sure. Mm-hmm. Just happens to be a um, himself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, I think if you look at parts of Kinder in the light of that particular scene, um, I think what Chris Bailey wants you to think is that the, the militaristic suppression of self and dehumanization is actually not really all that different from this actually very sort of fluffily regarded Hindu Buddhist idea um, of the abnegation of ego. Um, because in the end, um, they both result in your death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in Hinduism, um, you're liberated from the, you're, 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 you're no longer chained to the wheel of life. You're, you're, you're no longer cursed to be continually reincarnated and put back on earth for more suffering. Mm. You just get to die. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the end point of uh, the, the 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 reincarnation process. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's 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 over. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, you 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 just get to go to rest, and you're no longer continually reincarnated as whatever creature um, your actions in this life determine that you should be. 
it's some pretty deep shit for seven o'clock on a Monday or Tuesday evening, isn't it, Doc? Whenever it's a broadcast. <laughs> Kind of is really, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, this, we're, we're literally only scratching the surface now. Mm. Um, you were the person who turned me on to this, so um, I'm going to ask you to talk about Ingmar Bergman for a bit since you mentioned existentialism. Sure, I mean, I'm not overly familiar with Ingmar Bergman. I have made a note of obviously those, um, some of the stylistic choices here are redolent of um, Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Um, particularly the um in that movie like the chess playing sequences yes and i think here you've got um quite deliberately you've got those two characters that are kind of sitting in a similar pose and it, everything goes black and white and just the, the use of shadow really really brought that to mind um beyond that doc no i, I, I run a bit dry with bergman you'll have to help me out um, so, uh, the reason for the, 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 the explicit Bergman reference, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right, I, I believe the expression is churrasco, um, where you increase the contrast on black and white films so much that you've got nothing but black and white. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Chiascoro, maybe. Um, the Seventh State Seal is a story about a man who is facing an existential crisis, so he's returning from the Crusades, having done God's work, and is thoroughly traumatized by the experience. And he's obliged to travel through Europe, which is um, in the throes of the Black Death. Yeah. Um, and he he has quite literally a chess competition um, with death. Mm -hmm. um, I think Bergman's depiction of death um, is also a very clear influence on the Time Lord who briefs the fourth doctor at the beginning of Genesis of the Daleks. But, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting observation, Doc. Yeah. Um, moving on from there. And it's it's a meditation on, uh, like, quite literally, what's the fucking point? Mm. Mm. Um, we've been doing God's work, and is this how God rewards us? Or maybe it wasn't God's work. Sure. Um, and there's another bit in that sequence I obviously hadn't, this didn't stick out to me at all when I was eight years old. Um, it sticks It sticks out to me like a sore thumb nowadays. The second time we see uh, Dukha, um, who's the, the, the sinister young man. Mm -hmm. um, is it me or um, is he presented in the manner of a heroin addict on the third day of come down? Yeah, it, 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 I mean the makeup is yeah I, I I do I take your point there Doc the the use of makeup and the way that they've like almost like oversaturated the image um, to give him the you know those terrible looking uh, like bags under the eyes almost isn't it you know yeah um, um, and I mean he, just just in case really that up, doesn't he and just in case that wasn't obvious enough he's um, he's actually um, he's he's sat in a doorway with his sleeve rolled up oh yeah yeah and, and the lips are <laughs> the lips are. are look pinched and, and and you can imagine if it was in color that they, they, they wouldn't be red they'd actually be blue and like drained of blood yeah yeah um, it's a really, really, good, really good point then uh, he gets that line to, T, uh, to to tegan where he says sooner or later you will agree to being me mm -hmm. yeah um, and again there you know we, we're talking about identity and, and existentialism aren't we um there's a great line i made a note to let me find it um mm -mm 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 -mm. Oh, where, where, what, what have I done with it? Where have I, where have I put this quote? Um, hang on, Doc. 
Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Oh, I've lost it. Maybe I've deleted it by mistake. Um, but it, it was something along the lines of um, how can you, how can you, how can you be if you do not exist? Something like that. He says. Yeah, and I mean, there's that great long existential meditation that. Um, and it, it's it's a very mean trick uh, that I think is probably derived from uh, the the French play um, the Vicious Circle, um, where uh, Tegan gets left alone to torture herself. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's basically uh, two two identical Tegans trying to work out which one is real. Mm. I, um, I thought it was interesting, Doc. They're, they're, they're kind of Tegans kind of flopped on the floor in the middle of a forest, um, seemingly unconscious. I don't think the rest of the guys know that she's having these visions, do they, um, at this no. point? Um, and then when she wakes up, they say something like, uh, you've been asleep for nearly two days. Um, mm-hmm. so, so she's just been, kind of been abandoned and left there on the forest floor for two days. It seems, it seems rather cruel. <laughs> um, this isn't the first time we mentioned this. Um we're going to get into this a lot more when we get to the two doctors, because mm. uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time recently trying to make sense of, of what that story has to say about its environment, and I've come to some conclusions. Um, Christopher Bailey, Oblique Strip, Peter Grimwade, seem painfully aware of the fact that the doctor in this incarnation is, um, I'm not saying abusive quite, but he's certainly a criminally neglectful father. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um We've observed this numerous times. We've, we've observed it in Fort of Doomsday. Um, he doesn't seem to give a shit about the people around him now, does he? Well, not in the same way that, you know, that, that, that John and Tom did. You know, he, he seemed to have genuine affection for his companions, didn't he? Uh, didn't they? Um, yeah. You know, if Sarah, if Sarah Jane was in trouble... You know, Tom Baker's incarnation seemed genuinely, well, troubled by it. Um, and John Pert was the same, we, 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 certainly with Joe. Um, almost, uh, but maybe that maybe that derives from the age difference. Um, you know, between the between the, the characters. I, I I know it's I know it's a time lord doc, and he's nine hundred years old. However many years they decide in that particular week's script. Um, um, but but in but in reality we're watching it and, and and you know Tom could quite easily be Sarah Jane's father um <laughs> Pertwee could quite easily be Joe Grant's father but the same is well, I think true. It could be her grandfather it could even be the grandfather you're right yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um the doctor is played as a very weak ineffectual figure in the story i think that's a matter of expediency um, because there's so much interesting stuff going on in the rest of the narrative, and the rest of the characters are so much more interesting. Um, he, got, he got a bit handsy though at the end, didn't he? I, I thought it was good to see him he kind of got, kind of getting a bit physical with 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 Hindle, um, actually, you know, physically prevent him, preventing him from from pressing that button. And all the way through, actually, I thought Davison's energy levels were were pretty infectious, actually, Doc. He's still a monstrous prick, though. I mean, um, the bit oh. where... Um, <laughs> the, the bit where Adric gets the key and Hindle spots him with it yeah. and makes him turn it over. The Doctor in that scene reminds me of, like, 
the fucking asshole at school who would hand you like who who would hand you his cigarettes to uh, to hold mm. and um, then grass you up to the teacher yeah yeah or, or um at the very least would would, would like get you to hold on to them because he 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 knew he was in for a shaking down because he'd been caught with cigarettes before mm. um and then when you got shaken down and you got turned up with them he wouldn't like fess up or anything or or or, or um but don't, don't you think that you know the doctor's kind of, the apparent kind of apathy, even coldness towards Adric is is, is understandable because Adric's a little twat, isn't he? Um, you know that 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 scene at, at the end when he when, you know when he's when he's blaming Tegan, she's been through this traumatic ordeal, um, and instead of showing any kind of sympathy, he, he, you know he, he's trying to kind of shame and blame her. He's a little bastard, Doc. I don't I don't blame the doctor for for, for being a for being a cunt towards him. Well, uh, no such thing as bad student, only bad teacher. Um, yeah. And um, Adric is learning no lessons from the doctor other than that immaturity and selfishness gets you what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if if you're Adric, remember that bravery and generosity of spirit get your brother killed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, that's full circle, is it, Doc? Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and... Um, uh, <laughs> Adric's a 16-year-old boy. He's supposed to be a little prick. That's what mm. 16-year-old boys are like. Um, this is kind of a bit that would be absolutely intolerable in modern Doctor Who because the line would be given to someone edgy and assertive. But in this story, I think it's wonderful when uh, the Doctor meets Pana and um, she just fucking pours scorn on him from the moment they meet. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's... Um, that, that, that. That's the bit where I was, I was, I was going to talk about, like the, like the humour in this, because it is quite po-faced in a way. This story, um, you know, you, you, you were railing against modern who taking itself far too seriously, and this almost had the the possibility of veering in that direction. But then that character is introduced and just keeps referring to the Doctor as the idiot, and all of that yes. is stripped away. You know, genuinely, genuinely funny. Um, it's. It's genuinely funny because, I mean, uh, the Doctor has been behaving like an irresponsible little prick. Mm. And I, 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 I just love watching this stern old matriarch fucking pour scorn on him from a great height and be absolutely correct while she... Uh, I mean, um, in Pana's limited world, she does know more than he does. She does understand more than he does. Sure. Um, the Doctor, frankly, seems to be missing out patently cock-obvious things. Mm. Um, I'm not really all about talking about the literal parts of the plot in this section because I mean there's a few more of the intellectual bits and pieces that I I want to get through just so I can sort of list the things that I think are in there and we can get back talking about them Um, I don't know whether this is intentional but um, each of the each of the worlds that we visit has its own analogue for the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I've, I've talked before about how um, I think in the context of queerness, I think the TARDIS is definitely a closet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've said, I hope, with a bit of a sense of humour very early on in this project, every Doctor Who story starts with the Doctor coming out of the closet. Very good. Yeah, good. Great line, Doc. Yeah. Um, and there are sort of approximately four worlds 
Um, there's the Doctor's world, which has the actual TARDIS in it. There's the Dream world, which has that odd box made from um, like corrugated steel. Yeah. Um, where apparently uh, Dukkha comes out of. There's the colonialist world, which has its own TARDIS, which is the the the, the TSS, the exploration machine. Oh yeah. And then there's uh, there's the Kinder world, and when um, Aris and if you like, when masculine aggression temporarily gets the upper hand in the Mara world, they construct their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they make the sort of cargo cult TSS mm-hmm. by tying together some bamboo poles. Um, and this is from Fraser as well. Um, it's sympathetic magic. And I I thought that was a really nice way for Chris Bailey to tie together the idea that um, they're not alternate realities, so to speak. Um, they're, they're different depths of perception. Mm-hmm. Um, each one slightly below the other. And we, we assume the dream world is the one that's closest to the subconscious, where it's black and dingy and nothing makes sense. And I suppose we're supposed to think of the kinder world as being the one that's closest to the fresh air and the sunlight Sure. And closest to nature. And then we're left very ambiguous about which of the two nether regions in between the colonial the, the colonialist world and the world of the doctor, mm. what place they have. Yeah. What well, kind of what 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 order they're in, effectively. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I understand um, Doc. Yeah. Um, I mean there's it would have been very, very easy, would it not? to have portrayed Sanders as a completely... I think Sanders is a very humorous character. Mm. I remember being very frightened of Sanders because uh, I, I, I grew up a, among a lot of people like that. I grew mm-hmm. up amongst a lot of um, stern old blokes, many of whom had been in the military, and who are obviously... Because everyone's taller than you when you're seven. Um, I grew up around a lot of people like that, and I, I, I was scared of Sanders. Like By the time I was age 30... Um, I had a um, boss who was very much like that, who I got on very, very well with. Um, and now I'm sort of actually approaching the age and experience of that character. Um, I, I don't quite look down on Sanders, not yet, but um, I am. I would be capable of nudging Sanders in the ribs and going, you're not as smart as you think you are. You don't mm. know, you, you haven't seen as much as you think you have. Sure. And the more you keep re- revisiting that character, um, there's a lot of humour um, in him as well. Mm-hmm. He's written such that Hindle, being in his early 20s, is still capable of, of being overawed by him. I don't know whether Sanders knows that he's being awesome. I think Sanders thinks he's being jocular. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's being... I think he thinks he's being bluff. And he's making jokes at the expense of military protocol. Um, but actually the, comes across as intimidating just by dint of his um, kind of standing and also just his demeanour. And, and Yeah, and by the fact that he's Richard Todd. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, um, uh, Nervous Hughes' character um, clearly doesn't take him very seriously. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only Hindle who I think is uptight even by the standards of ambitious young officers. 
But there are people, aren't there, that, that, we, that we encounter in life who inexplic inexplicably we find intimidating, and but other people don't seem to. There's just something about the chemistry between you, know, you and that other person that always makes you feel small and inferior somehow. Um, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about John Pertwee, Doctor Who again, um, at the end of, I think it's episode three of The Mind of Evil, um, the master gets a cliffhanger. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, I think the master gets a cliffhanger. Um, and the thing that the, the color machine chooses to intimidate and frighten the master with is an image of the doctor. Sure. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But great piece yeah, of writing from old Don Houghton. Definitely. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's just how much I admire the, the writing of characters and the story, the fact that even though obviously the script is exactly the same and the thing that's on the videotape is exactly the same as it has been since 1983, my perception of the, the relationship between those two characters has, has absolutely completely, uh, like completely changed. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I started off younger than both of them. Then I became younger than one of them. Then I became old, then I became older than one of them. Then I became older than two of them. Mm. Now I'm sort of getting to the age where I'm a, like almost as old as the oldest of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Marmaduke, um, as a as a as a uh, as, as as an entity, obviously it's represented as as a serpent. Now that that's got to be a deliberate choice, hasn't it? You know, the serpent, the universal symbol of kind of temptation leading to downfall, you know, to decadence, the loss of purity and innocence. That, 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 that's a deliberate choice, isn't it, Doc? I think a lot of the superficially Christian and Hindu imagery in this story is a blind. I think it's there to mislead you. Do you? Um, I think we are meant to... Um, yes, of course, the marrow is a snake. Yeah. Um, with its obvious Christian symbolism. We've discussed in another project why a snake is such a universal symbol for evil. And we, we, we discussed it at that time. Um, it's because unlike almost every other animal, snakes and spiders only ever existed in an antagonistic relationship with human beings. Oh, yes, I remember that conversation, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are other predators. Um, wolves can be domesticated and they can um, be made useful. Bears can be reasonably easily coexisted together with. Yeah. Um, bears don't often hunt human beings. Mm. Um, if you're attempting to have an agricultural community, you don't run into many sharks. Mm. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, if your community is based on fishing, you might run into a shark now and then. But once again in the great history of terrible things that can happen to fishermen, being eaten by a shark doesn't rank very, very highly. No, it's pretty low risk. Yeah. Mm. Um, so snakes and humans only ever have an, an antagonistic relationship. I don't think we're supposed to, uh, I think superficially we're supposed to identify it as a, as, as a, a, a Christian symbol of evil. Mm -hmm. um, but the Mara isn't the devil, the Mara isn't Satan. Um, what the Mara actually is is something far closer to the um, the Ouroboros. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the sort of the... the, the this is the, 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 like the snake that's eating its own tail. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, or um, it's it's analogy in the world of carry-on films, the Uzalum bird. Um, which I don't became know that. Is it, is it, 
is that the um, the minor bird that, that, that keeps mimicking people? Um, no, um, uh, Kenneth Williams doesn't believe uh, that it ever actually became extinct because he said it was based on a biological impossibility. And once again, the first time I saw that film, which was probably the same year that I saw Kinder, I didn't understand that reference. I later un understood the obvious meaning, which is it's a bird that became extinct because it disappeared of its own asshole. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. Um, Doc, we're in danger of running exceptionally long if we don't move on to the next bar you, you said you, you you wanted to drop a couple of like intellectual nuggets do you want to do, you want to do that now doc before we move on yeah so um i started off talking about apocalypse now and then uh, i didn't intend to but i ended up talking about full metal jacket for a bit as well yeah um why did i start off by talking about apocalypse now in the scene quite close to the end of the film where uh captain willard gets to spend some time with colonel kurtz you get a shot of Colonel Kurtz's desk with his favourite books on it. Um, and one is from Ritual to Romance by Jesse Weston. One is The Golden Bough by Fraser. Um, and the other one is The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And all three of those books are referenced extensively in this story. Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of fitting because in some ways, this is also a story about a man who goes up the jungle and loses his mind. Sure. And, tries yeah. to, and tries to make himself into a king. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go over these very, very quickly, um, more in the manner of a reading list, because if you if you haven't read them, then please do. Mm -hmm. Jesse Weston's book, From Ritual to Romance, um, is, and it's kind of in the title, really, it's an exposition of how what we think of as romantic fiction has its roots in pre-Christian or pagan fertility rites. Um and there's another David Lodge reference that I'm going to bring up at the end of this little section here. Um, Fraser's book, The Golden Bough, is a discussion of, in the slightly racist but also self-deprecating language of the era in which it was written, what he calls primitive king-making rituals. Um, he uses the word primitive, and I don't think he uses it in a pejorative sense, I think he just uses it as a description referring to non-Christian cultures or non-monotheistic cultures. And he has this idea of sympathetic magic, which is exactly what you see. I, I, I called it a cargo cult TSS earlier on. I don't think it is. I think it's kinder sympathetic magic. When Aris orders the construction of a TSS out of lashed together leaves and branches, um, that's something straight out of Fraser, that it, it, if if you emulate a thing, you will obtain the power of a thing. So sure. if you make yourself up as a bear and you wear a bearskin or you put eagle feathers in your hair, you will channel some of the power of the creature you're emulating. The, 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 this kind of touches on your kind of um, Eastern Chinese medicine, doesn't it? You know, where if, 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 you, if you drink a tincture with some rhino horn, ground down into it you're somehow going to be imbued with the power of the rhino yes yeah yeah mm -hmm. um and specifically you're going to get a cock with the attributes of a rhino horn sure that's it yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. um and, and that's that's what fraser characterizes as sympathetic magic um mm -hmm. before people tell it start telling me that uh, fraser was a racist and uh, all of this stuff um, there is a great bit 
in his book and it starts off where you, you just almost want to like face palm and go oh god no did you have to go and he starts talking about in the foulest it, it sounds like lovecraft for a bit in in the foulest darkest corners of borneo and mm -hmm. the congo and wales <laughs> on the one hand he's making a point but on the other hand he's clearly undercutting himself completely yeah. borneo and congo and my also, I, just, I, I, I just laughed my head off the first time i read that yeah just, just, um, don't forget don't forget to pack your machete that's all i'm saying when you go through <laughs> <laughs> um and then the third book um, is, and this is also the second time this has come up in this episode, The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot, which itself draws on very heavily on um, From Ritual to Romance by Jesse Weston, and also includes elements of Hinduism and Hindu notions of reincarnation, mm. and also includes um, elements of Freudian id and ego and superego and also includes notions of we, what we talked about we touched on very briefly uh jungian um jouissance and desire and you know famously what is desired is not the thing but the desire to desire the thing sure yeah mm -hmm. um actually owning the thing um having it then you know ah, what the fuck's that did, did, didn't want it in the first place well, this is, I mean, the, 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 this is a very common phenomenon, isn't it? But, you know, um, amongst men, that you know, the, the, you know, that see kind of gratific sexual gratification with, 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 you know, with the likes, with, with one night stands and things. They're not actually interested in, 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 in the woman. It, it's just, it's the chase that's the, that's the fun bit. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, so... Um, and you're, you're talking about the the chase, the hunting instinct. Yeah, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a coincidence at all that when Aris, um, let's not put too fine a point on it, when Aris is raped by Tegan uh -huh. um, and acquires masculine aggression, sure, he immediately paints himself up like a hunter and makes a spear. Mm -hmm. And so, if if I can encourage anyone to go out and do some reading, um, even if you're not interested in furthering your knowledge about Doctor Who, please just uh, go out and, and, and read The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. Um, you won't regret it. There we go. Um, there we go. There we go, guys. Are we ready to move on to the next section, Doc? Um, I need to finish up on Jesse Weston, and I need on, to then. loop back. Um, <clears throat> you can tell I've been watching Kinder. I, I, I can't stop thinking in circles. And I need to loop back to David Lodge once again, and the, the original passage that I was looking for, and I'm pretty sure I've got this right, when... It's the character named Angelica Pabst who's actually speaking, but let's not get mistaken. It's David Lodge um, who's actually making the speech through the mouth of one of his characters. Um, and she talks about how um, epic and tragedy um, deliver um, their narrative in a single explosive thrust, of, um, a, a thrust and release of energy, um, which is called, not for no reason, a climax. Um, and it's an explicitly male climax. Romance is not structured in this way. And this sent chills down my spine the first time I read it. Um, and it said, um, the greatest and characteristic romances have no ending. They end only with the author's exhaustion. The structure is like this. 
no matter has what no sooner has one adversary been defeated than another appears to take his place no matter no sooner has one misfortune um around the hero been resolved than another presents itself um the text comes and comes and comes again in an endless series of contractions exact exactly analogous to the muscles of the vagina during orgasm it's the most explicit linkage i can think of between what's going to be the next topic which is when we get on to influences and things that were abroad sure um, the construction of a romantic narrative or um one that keeps going um one that keeps coming one that has as david lodge puts it um one that has multiple orgasms mm-hmm. um is the most explicit linkage between romantic narrative and in the water at the time the radical feminism of the late 1970s and early 1980s um, sure. i'm going to put that down for a second and we have a special section in the episode where very phallocratically um we other all of this stuff mm. and compartmentalize it and 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 put it and, and put it in its own little box um that's all i've got to say on those particular subjects I'll, uh, so i'll hand back over to you and you can go for a bit oh doc yeah so obviously listeners you know if you feel if you feel the urge go and check out the doc's reading recommendations in the meantime uh keep listening and we'll move on to part 3 commander you are authorized to use the mind probe what No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call "Not the Mind Probe." Um, you know, world affairs, influences, all that kind of jazz. Uh, broadcast dates for Kinder was the first of February nineteen eighty two to the ninth of Feb nineteen eighty two. U.S. film releases of note: uh, three for your doc, Butterfly. What we did was bound to happen in the first day we met. it did it was good for both of us i come to stay with you keep you from being lonely a man of honor doesn't it shame you just a little bit to go make it up to every single man you meet what's to be ashamed of and a woman with none what happens between them will change both of them for better for worse forever Night crossing the East German border 836 miles of barbed wire walls armed guards and landmines on September 15th 1979 two families tried to cross it emergency alert the most daring escape attempt of our time it would only take 28 minutes and a miracle night crossing rated PG Now playing at a theater near you. Check local listings. And personal best. How did it feel going to the games, winning two gold medals? Would you lie to me and tell me it was worth it if it wasn't? What about you? Can you go to Moscow next summer? Not a clue. Not a Scooby. Um, personal best. 
Um, I only know because it's the film after which the first Team Dresh album was named. Oh, yes? Um, which is interesting considering that we're discussing radical feminism and lesbian quite a bit in the context of this story. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's a story about a, a lesbian affair between two competing athletes. Mm. Um, Butterfly I've never heard of in my life. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to have to remind me of what the other one was. Night Crossing was the second one. It's a good title. It is a good title, I agree. Yeah, but no idea what it is. Um, no. UK number ones. Uh, how about this for a contrast, Doc? We've got, we've got two here. Uh, the first one, Shaking Stevens, Oh Julie. And then the following week, it was Kraftwerk um, with a double A side of the model. juxtaposition that is done. um well it, in our when we were talking about fraser a minute a, a minute or two ago uh, we had to bring up like evil and diabolical practices in wales and i mean then shaking stevens turns out to be, there we go. Um, no coincidence no uh, no coincidence at all um <laughs> and um i mean then if you want to try really hard uh Kraftwerk release a double a side single um which I think as an a, an exemplar of the queerest genre of music ever mm. um, presents its ultimate piece of um, masculinity in crisis. Sure. <laughs> um, Doc, the pent-up rage of Hindle, um, <laughs> really, really unusual to see in Doctor Who. Brilliant performance, I think, by, uh, was it Simon Rouse? Yes. Um, a genuinely, genuinely scary character, the likes of which I don't think has been seen in Doctor Who before or since. 
Um, and it, 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 you know, it, it, it brought to mind um, the likes of, I don't know, Sam Neill in Event Horizon, something like that. I think we normally only see this in cinema, Doc, not on TV. I created the event horizon to reach the stars. But she's gone much, much farther than that. She tore a hole in our universe, a gateway to another dimension. A dimension of pure chaos. Pure evil. When she crossed over, she was just a ship. But when she came back, she was alive. Look at her, Miller. Isn't she beautiful? Your beautiful ship killed its crew, Doctor. Well... Now she has another crew. Now she has us. Um... He's, he's a really interesting, he's, you've got no idea how delightful it is for me to be able to meditate on the days when Doctor Who did stuff like this. Yeah. When Doctor Who actually had proper multidimensional characters mm. Mm. in it. I, um, I mean, his performance, Doc, I must be honest, was so potent and mesmerizing. I, I found it, I found it difficult really to, to focus on anything else. I thought, you know, he, he was just the, not not that anybody else was doing anything wrong. You know, the Sanders character was, was a great performance. Nerys Hughes put in a great performance. Tegan, you know, was, 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 was a real star here. Um, but this central performance of this of this man going absolutely stark raving mad, I, I thought it was captivating. Um, and here's the thing. I've never met anyone like Tobias Bourne mm. or General Carrington or mm. Davros. I've met people like him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm. I've. Um, I think it's a wholly believable portrayal of someone's reaction to extreme stress when the training has failed. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, what military people will tell you is the purpose of the training is not just to be a bastard. Um, the purpose of the training is to give you something to fall back on when your bravery and when your rational mind can't cope anymore. Mm -hmm. um, that instead of reverting back to a gibbering child, you revert back to the thing that you were trained to be. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, what happens when the training fails? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, what happens to Hindle when the training fails? I think because it's kinder, um, I think has an analogy um, in what happens to Karuna. Um, we'll get onto Simon Rouse again in a little bit, because I've, I've got a ton more stuff to say about him. Fantastic performance. We'll get onto Karuna in a moment, but I want to talk about um, Janet Fielding for a second here. Um, when you give her a decent part and some good lines and direct her well, isn't Janet Fielding fantastic? 
Well, she was, she was just great, wasn't she? I mean, normally she's a, she's a fucking irritant, you know, like like a wasp at a, at a picnic. Um, but 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 no, here just 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 great, you know, with the the, the camera really really worked worked with her, you know, when she was on screen, you know, it, 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 she delivered a powerful performance. There was none of the um, kind of whininess and, and, and kind of high-pitched, just moaning and bleating and bitching and carping that she normally does. Um, instead, she was actually given some some actual stuff of substance to deliver, and that's precisely what she did. Yeah, I thought she was great. I want to ask you a question. I'm, I'm not sure about this. Um, point number one, um, can you think of a performance or a actress, oblique stroke director combination in English language cinema with such ferocious confrontational um, feminine sexual energy in it? Um, um, I think you. I, I think you need to go forward a few years. I think you need to go to the last seduction with Linda Fiorentino in it before you get anything like that. I haven't seen that. Um... I'm just trying to think, Doc. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe something like uh, Helena Bonham Carter in Fight Club. But you know, that's that's obviously that's in the future. Oh, that's that in the future. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, Doc. That is in the future. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, no, no, knows the answer to your question. I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, Janet's performance with the encouragement and compliance of the director and the writer, is actually so potently sexual here. Yeah. When Pallas says that the Mara inhabit the dark places of the inside, um, not to put to find a point on it, um, is the Mara actually Tegan's sexualized aggression? Well, I, I wondered if, 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 you know, because again, because it's a snake, you know, the obvious phallic... Um, image that the, 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 the snake presents I, I wondered if that was a, you know a, a secondary reason for the choice of the mara being the snake dog um well snakes are powerful symbols within feminism when 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 snakes are arboreal that 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 the holes sure huh. yeah. mm. um snakes are also very cunnilingular Mm. Um, that they've, they've got that little tongue that flashes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're clitoral because superficially snakes appear to have no purpose but their own self gratification. Mm. They don't contribute to any ecosystem. They're not part of any reproductive system. Mm-hmm. Um, and most potently, from a from, from a fe- feminist point of view, um, snakes are also pathogenic. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so um, no man, no man necessary, basically. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to push this angle of it too much because I'm not sure, and because it's Doctor Who, and because however deep it goes, it's still on telly at half past seven mm. um, in the evening, and they were obliged to deliver a rubber monster. Mm-hmm. I think the representation of the Mara as a rubber monster is a stroke of genius, mm-hmm. um, considering that it's a creature that's born out of the imagination of a human being um it's not surprising to me at all that it would manifest itself as a giant rubber snake mm. well it, 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 it's no different to the end of uh, something like ghostbusters is it you know where you know that it, 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 
I can't remember the I can't remember the reason why, but the, you know the 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 thoughts of of the Ghostbusters are being manifested, and you know the the denouement is the is the what is it called like the the snow puff, the snow puff man or something with giant <laughs> what's it called Doc? The, the um, yeah the snow puffed man something like that isn't it yeah you know the, the, and the Mara is, is is no more no more ridiculous than that. Oh, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Doc. Because of the reputation of it, I was expecting it to look far, far worse. I didn't think it looked too bad at all. I don't think it looks terrible at all. No, I don't. Um, there's another thing about the snake and about Tegan that I, I promised 13 weeks ago um, I'd finish off. I said to you, did I not, that um, I kind of read For to Doomsday and Kinder as two halves of an eight-part story. Sure. Um, and they they certainly both embrace a spiritual journey of Tegan's. Mm -hmm. The difference is that Four to Doomsday is not very good, and Kindra is very good. Mm -hmm. um, Four to Doomsday, we, we, we were appreciative at the time that it's conscious of Tegan's Australian-ness. Yeah. Um, a great deal of background material for Kinder, for me, would seem to be Aboriginal religion. Mm. Um, you've got the... I, I, I believe an early pre-production title of it was Dreamtime. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in my imagination, because it's a line from Fall to Doomsday, an early production title of Fall to Doomsday would have been Flesh Time. Ah, uh, yes. And, you know, uh, I was reading earlier in preparation, Christopher Bailey was um, asked to supply another script which in the end wasn't actually commissioned wasn't produced <laughs> but that script that spec script was called maytime there you go mm -hmm. yeah so there's definitely a theme isn't there doc um and in in the case of the two stories we actually got um it's aspects of aboriginal religion yeah. um what i really need as with fall to doomsday um I need someone, ideally Australian, ideally with some local knowledge about this stuff, mm. um, to make some comment on this. So if anyone's out there, we would absolutely love to hear from you. Come on, Aussies, get in touch. Um, um, so being a little bit ignorant about Aboriginal religion, I'm going to shut up about it now. I'm also going to make reference to an influence that I haven't touched on, and I'm not going to. And people are going to want to wonder why. I'm not going to mention Ursula Kelleguin here. And the reason is that she's one of these writers who has her own scholarship and her own fans and her own following, of which I'm not a member. Um, and I'm not in the habit of pretending that I know stuff about things that I don't know anything about. So duly noted, I understand it's oft regarded to be an influence. If there are Ursula K. Le Guin fans out there, um, I mean... I could talk about the story so much. What I would love to do is to actually gather up some other people with some diverse opinions. And um, I'd love to have like a, a, a bit of a special episode clusterfuck where we, 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 we all have a big chat about it. Sure, Doc, yeah. My, my last um, influence that, that I'd like to mention before we move on to the production section of the show would be Seeds of Doom, you know. Um, a Doctor Who story from what, maybe five or six seasons prior? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, Hindle's obsession with the plants and the trees and the, the general vegetation did, did did bring Harrison Chase to mind for me, Doc. I don't know about you. 
Well, um, Harrison Chase is another one of these politically queer characters in Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, and Harrison Chase's um, affinity for plants, um, the way he begins to treat the crinoid like his adopted baby. Mm. Um, and I know parthenogenesis is not quite the... I know plants actually do reproduce sexually and they do have zygotes and gametes, but... Mm -hmm. Um, plants don't reproduce phallically. No, they don't. Yeah. Um, and it's spores, Doc. It's always fucking spores. I think fungi have spores, mate. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I just, um, wanted, to, I just wanted to say the word spores. It's a great word. Let's yeah. say it again. Spores, <laughs> because that gives me an excuse to say they're not spores. They're zygotes <laughs> and gametes, <laughs> which are also great words. <laughs> The fury um, on the doc's face as he as he delivered those words was a joy to behold. Um, and so you've, you've you've got both of these characters in very in very queer narratives, um, who, for reasons that once again I suppose in twenty twenty two may come across as even slightly homophobic, sure. um, have a affinity with non-phallic methods of reproduction. Mm -hmm. um, I don't... Uh, the idea of the vegetation getting in, the idea of the jungle getting in, um, that goes all... Uh, that, in Doctor Who, that goes all the way back to episode three, uh, episode two of... Episode two of the Keys of Marinus. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, where, um, for some reason, the, the, the jungle hates mammalian life. Mm-hmm. Isn't, um, isn't there an Avengers episode with a similar kind of theme? The Maneater of Surrey Green comes to mind. Maneater of Surrey Green, yeah. There we go. Um, yeah. I mean, the, um, the the sort of predatory lesbian implication of the title of that episode never occurred to me until I was much older either. Very good, Doc, yeah. yeah. Uh, any more influences, Doc, before we get onto the production part? Um, I wanted to talk about radical feminism. I wanted to talk about it a lot and at length, and I don't have time. And um, once again, I, I don't intend to attempt to squish years' worth of scholarship. Um, we've talked about it in the context of the romantic narrative and mm. the non-allocratic narrative. Um, there's a very specific point which got away from me for years and years and years. The kinder are, poly are um, uh, polyandrous, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. Yes, it's certainly implied, isn't it? I think she doesn't. She say she's got seven, seven, seven fathers. Seven fathers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what this puts me in mind of of probably the first university level English literature lecture I attended, and it was on the Winter's Tale. And the um, the lady who gave the lecture was talking about how she considers it to be a feminist narrative because the the tragic flaw um, in the King is his scepticism um, about his own fatherhood. And it's not possible for a woman to be sceptical about her own motherhood. Mm. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Karuna um, has a line about how she's got seven fathers. This mystified me for years, and I assumed that the kinder had a reproductive process that required seven sets of sperm. Sure, to, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It clearly doesn't. It clearly means that kinder women are polyandrous. And Aris is one of seven candidates for I mean, who are 
others? Oh, I, I, I interpreted it as, um, you know, she effectively felt that seven of the kinder males had kind of acted as her father throughout her younger life. Um, so um, I presume they all have an avuncular role. Mm. Um, I assume that, that, um, that, that there, are, there are seven avuncular men um, mm. in Karen's life, and presumably each of those men have avuncular roles to other children as well. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I came pretty solidly to the conclusion that what we were supposed to interpret is that the the identity the identity of Karuna's father um, is probably not known even to her mother. That's interesting. I, I just didn't interpret it as, you know, the, her, her mum had been kind of shagging her way around the village, but maybe you're right. Maybe you're right, Doctor. I, 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 don't, I, I think the, the, the inference is very, very far, is the exact opposite of the fact that Karuna's mother is the village slut. Sure. No, no, um, no, no, no slut shaming involved there, Doc. You know, I don't care who she sleeps with. Um, but I think um, the inference is that um, in an effort or an evolutionary turnout to avoid patriarchal culture, yeah. nobody knows who their father is. Mm -hmm. um, nobody is able to exert patriarchal authority over any child. Oh, because no yeah, there's, no con there's no patriarchal lineage. That's right. Really interesting, Doc. Yeah, yeah it's a good interpretation. Yeah. Um, I've got one final thing, um, and it's the only sort of dark spot in kinder culture that we pointed at, um, what happens to Karuna? Like, what happens to Karuna? When Pana dies and is immediately reincarnated in Karuna's book, what happens to Karuna's consciousness? Well, I mean, I presume it ceases, it, at that point it ceases to exist, doesn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, has 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 Pana just murdered a little girl so she yeah, can be reincarnated? Yeah, I think so, Doc. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a bit of a second down. <laughs> yeah, shit. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, that, that that was definitely uh, how I viewed it. That girl, that girl no longer exists, and the old lady, you know, is free to continue her own existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. Pretty dark shit, man. Yeah. Yeah. So I need to stop now. Um, I mean, as as Jean Luc Godard says at the end of A Bon the definition of, an, of a happy ending is where you choose to stop telling the story. Uh -huh. um, note, let's move on to the, the final part of the show. Overweight underpowered museum piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. Here we talk about the production stuff, don't we? Um, I've only got a couple of notes here, really. Though. We've, we've already touched on the snake, and that's, that's a bit obvious. So we don't need to dwell on that again, I don't think. Um... Some of the visuals here, I thought were absolutely sensational, you know. Um, I loved, um, there's a wonderful, uh, th th that trickster character, I think he's called. Um, yeah. He, he threatens to leave Tegan all alone in this kind of void. And there's a, there's a wonderful effect where you can kind of see by the outlines of both of the performers. Yeah. Just in, the, just tiny hints of white in this black void. I thought it looked absolutely sensational, though. Um, it's they pushed the boat out. They did that on a on, on film, didn't they? Mm, but the stuff in the forest and and, and in the uh, like the, the base is all on video, isn't it? On videotape, yeah. And and yeah, um, and, 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 the, and the, like the vision bits are all on film, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I thought it was a very interestingly avant-garde decision that if you had a budget to use some film, well, then the natural place to use the film would have been in the jungle, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and a director might have thought, well, I'll use the video for the dream time sequences um, because actually the unnaturalness of video might even make those look even... I thought it was a very brave and an absolutely correct decision mm-hmm. um, to go, it's a Doctor Who jungle on videotape, nobody will mind. Um, particularly nobody will mind if, hey, get a load of this, folks. Maybe people won't notice the plastic jungle on the brightly lit set if the story is interesting and compelling and there's yeah. good acting in it. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think going down that like European art house cinema route and using the film for the Dreamtime sequences, um, but very brave and uh, just the, the absolutely correct choice. Mm. Uh, Anything else about the um, the production we can come up? Is, um, there, is there is there use of rotoscoping here, Doc? That you, you've got um, towards the end, you've got some sequences where it, where it kind of goes a bit again, like colour saturated, a bit blurry. It almost looks like it almost looks like. Have you ever have you ever seen like a three D movie at the cinema and taken the glasses off? Yeah, and what that you know that that kind of effect it kind of looks a bit like that, and it but but it but it kind of looked like that 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 that, that effect called rotoscoping. I think what, what was the film that that, that is it Johnny Mnemonic? Is it Keanu? Um, anyway, no, a Scanner Darkly. That's the one. Um, Lord of the Rings is the most famous use of that. Oh, really? Uh huh. Um, the 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 Ralph Bakshi animation from the late seventies. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think what it is. I don't think Kinder had the budget for rotoscoping. Well, that's, that, 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 that's why I was, I was, I was dubious. Um, what I think it is, is Peter Grimwade, having witnessed enough bad CSO, has worked out a way to do that using CSO badly. Sure. Ah, well, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think he picks the, the key colour for CSO would normally be blue or green. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's doing is twiddling the knob on the CSO box and picking, like, yellow or pink right. as the key colour. Mm-hmm. And keying through people's skin tones and keying through people's hair colours. Yeah, yeah, because at, at times it's almost going translucent, isn't it? As if yeah. they're kind of almost like, fa- like phasing into another dimension or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great I think effect. It's, it's 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 sort of the um, it's it's Peter Grimwade's equivalent of the way that Lou Reed used guitar feedback, sure. um, and you know you 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 take an unwanted effect. Mm people do their best to eliminate and you go no 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 we'll we'll, we'll do something of that we'll use it we'll we'll we'll, we'll incorporate it into part of the performance and we'll, we'll, we'll make it a thing in its own right yeah um peter grimwade is never mentioned up there with the great and the good of doctor who directors is he no i don't think he is i mean he, he's he's never mentioned in the same breath as uh derek martinus or david maloney or douglas canfield sure um or graham harper Mm-hmm. Why is that? <clears throat> well, I'm just looking at the other stories that he, um, that he directed. I mean, he's, he's been saddled with some crap. I won't dispute that, but um, I, I think he's a good director. Mm. So um, Earthshock, he did. Um, what else? Kinder, um, Legopolis. 
Yeah, so yeah, I mean, is it full circle? I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, full circle. That, 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 that's a wonderfully directed story, isn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I don't enjoy watching it very much, but it's beautifully directed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I, uh, when we get round to it, I need to ask you very carefully. The sequences of the marshmen coming out of the swamp yeah. was that before or after the fog came out? Oh, that's a great. I, my, my instinct says before. You know, I think I think <laughs> the fog is about eighty one. I think so too. Yeah. Um, I mean, um, Logopolis is also, a, it's clunky at times, but the scale of the scope and the ambition of the direction of Logopolis is, I mean, it, it's, the temptation is to say epic. It's not epic. It's its definitely widescreen. He attempts stuff Yeah. in Logopolis and you only have to squint a bit to be able to see what he was intending you to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I fully agree. I, th- I thought this was a really, really, a really, really well-directed story throughout. I, d- I don't think there was any kind of moment of clunk in the direction at all. I don't. Um, uh, I mean, I can't even think of anything that comes close to clunk. Um, and by God, the man can pick a cast, can he? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. Uh, I am full of admiration who, for anyone who can think of, um, well, what we're going to do, we're going to hire this actress who was um, a legendary beauty in her 20s, mm. um, and we're going to unashamedly present her as like being in her 80s, um, and then we're going to tell her to act, we're going to tell her to act as though she was still 25 and beautiful. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Which is... I, I think exactly the performance that that, that that Mary Morris delivers. She's she's got the um, eat my shirt. I'm you know I'm looking down my nose at you, you worm. Yeah. Attitude of a very haughty, incomparably beautiful woman. I, I, think, um, I think the only I think the only duff performance would be uh, Adrian Mills. I would say I, th- I think he gets a bit uh, silly at times, a bit histrionic. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, it, it's it's a tough character to uh, it's a tough character to do right, isn't it? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and you know, he's not exactly a, 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 a you know a twenty year veteran thess, is he? No, um, I'm curious as to why they picked him. Yeah. Well, it, 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 isn't there a bit of a grand tradition of having uh, either past or future Blue Peter presenters in Doctor Who? Was Adrian Mills a Blue Peter? I know he was. He was a presenter on That's Life. 
maybe of yeah, maybe that's a false memory, mm-hmm. Doc. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, I'll double um, check it for the corrections next time. And one of his co-presenters was married to a school to a teacher at our sixth form. Wow! Well, there we go, Doc. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's good linkage. Anything else on the production, Doc, or is it about time to wrap up? Um, I feel as though that there's. Uh, <laughs> it's a very merciless way to do something with a character but oh my god doesn't the story benefit from not having Nyssa in it yeah I was very surprised when she popped up at the end I kind of forgot that she existed yes yeah Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it's I want to say no slight on Sarah Sutton but the fact is slight on Sarah Sutton Sarah Sutton has yet to appear in anything where her performance hasn't really annoyed me. Right. Mm. I, 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 I'm not as down on Nissa as you are, Doc. I quite like her as a character. But it, it, it but it's it, just the superficial thing. that I, I just think she's really cute, you know? So I don't mind her being on screen. Um, she is, and in her first appearance, where the whole point of her character is that she's a spoiled... Is, is that she's thoroughly naive and she's a spoiled princess mm. who gets... Effortlessly, effortlessly manipulated by her, her, her wicked wish of a stepmother. Is that Keeper of Tracken we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then that performance and that writing of the character makes sense. But it's not, that's not a character you can consistently have in a television programme. Um, uh, she needs to be having some character development by now. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I don't think he's coming, Doc. <laughs> I don't either. No, I don't think it is. Anything further, Doc? Or should we, should we call it a night? I'm starting to feel the uh, the fatigue bite. Um, I mean, I'm still very, very far from done with the story. Mm. Very, very far from done with it. Um, but if we were running a Patreon, um, what I would say is, um, if people... If our listeners can muster up an extra two pound fifty or something, I'll do another. I'll do another episode by myself and just blither on and for another. <laughs> well, you, well, Doc, you know you feel free if you want to record something and, and, and sling it in my direction. I can always chuck it up. Don't worry about that. Um, so it's it's a thing of joy um, mm. that's been enlivening my life for well over thirty five years. Mm. I, I didn't um, used to. I, I didn't like this story prior to this rewatch and I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it Doc. so I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we've had this opportunity to you know to to to, to um afford me my moment of awakening shall we say <coughs> yeah yeah an enlightenment yeah um really really good um doc next out next time out what are we doing we're doing Colin Baker's third story aren't we um, which would be Vengeance on Varos. Um, I have no memory of this story at all. Um, so I'm, I'm going into this pretty much. I think the only thing I know about it is this is the one that introduces Sil, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, pretty much all I know. I just want to say missed opportunities, and that is ah. it. Ah. Okay, <laughs> Doc, we're, do- we're done with... Uh, we're done with Kinder, I think, uh, for the time being, at least, at least, unless you uh, throw a file in my general direction. Um, I hope I'll see you next time, Doc. Namaste. 
see you later. Bye-bye.